welcome to episode 9 of Talking About My Generation, a pop culture podcast dedicated to the children of the 80s, 90s, and even into the 21st century. If you're new to the show, welcome. On this podcast, we'll discuss movies, video games, and television shows that we grew up on. Now, this week here, folks, I do have to apologize. I do not actually have a co-host, uh, so I'm going to kind of be doing it solo, all by my lonesome this week. But this week, we're going to talk about one of my favorite shows here, favorite movies. Uh, we're going to go back to the year 1982. The uh, main reason I'm bringing this up here is that this particular show, this particular movie, actually debuted in the theaters this week. Uh, debuted June, or I'm uh, sorry, not June, July 9th, 1982. Uh, it's a film that many of you may have seen. It was put out by Walt Disney Productions. Uh, it's a film called Tron. Uh, it was scripted and directed by Steven Lisberger, based on a story by Lisberger and Bonnie McBird. Uh, the film stars stars actually some really great actors if you've never seen them before. Uh, Jeff Bridges, Bruce Boxleitner, uh, David Warner, Cindy Morgan, Bernard Hughes. Uh, those are basically the main characters, our uh, main cast. Uh, there's basically what the story is here. It's a computer programmer that was transported inside the software world of a mainframe computer where he interacts with various programs in his attempt to get back out. Uh, now, the movie actually had been in development for quite some time. The, uh, it was developed, started off in 1976 when Lisberger became fascinated uh, with the early video game Pong. And if, you, if you've never seen Pong, Pong was basically this, it was kind of like a, these two lines that would go up and down on either side of the screen. It was kind of like playing tennis or ping pong, hence where the name Pong came from. And it would be these two lines that would slide up and down on either side of the screen with a little dot that would go back and forth symbolizing like a ball or a ping pong ball. And basically you'd knock the balls back and forth. It was, you know, when you look at it and compare it to what you can get nowadays, even on your iPhones, you know, your iPads, whatever, your computers, your Xboxes, PlayStation 3s, Pong is really pretty sad in the way of graphics. But it really was the very first video game that people were actually able to go and play. And there were kids that were pumping quarters into that game in arcades. Now, for those younger in the generation who have never heard of what an arcade is, ask your parents. They'll tell you all about it. They may even tell you about how you'd line up quarters on the machines to say who was next on the games. So lots of fun, lots of fun. I remember spending many days in arcades. But to get back to where the film came from, uh, Lisberger and producer Donald Kushner, they set up an animation studio to develop Tron with the intention of making it an animated film. Uh, to promote the studio himself, uh, Lisberger and his team created a 30-second long animation featuring the first appearance of the character Tron. Uh, now, in the end, however, Lisberger decided to include live-action elements with both backlit and computer animation, which was really far-fetched for the time, when you consider that computers were really in their infancy for what they could do at that time. It was not, you know, computers no way could do anything like what Pixar does today with things like Monsters University or Toy Story. It's come a very long way from it. And that was really kind of, with Tron being one of the first out there to try and do computer animation. It was really something different. It was very groundbreaking in that sense. Uh, so really, they, they had this, they, you know, they decided they were really going to do this for the actual feature-length film, and various film studios had rejected the storyboards for the film before the project was actually set up at Disney Studios. Uh, backlit the backlit animation was finally combined with computer animation and live action within Disney. 
Now, it was released in July, on July 9th, 1982, to, a thousand, to 1,091 theaters in the United States, and the film actually received very positive reviews for it. Uh, critics basically praised the visuals and acting, criticized the storyline, which, you know, it wasn't the greatest of storylines, but we'll get to that in a few minutes. I mean, it really was, it was okay. I'll admit it, you know. But it really was a box office success. It grossed $33 million in the United States, which would basically be approximately about $74 million in 2010 terms. I, uh, unfortunately, I can't tell you what the inflation would be for uh, 2013. But, I mean, that's a pretty decent amount when you consider it. That's definitely nothing to sneeze at. Uh, received several nominations for Best Costume Design, Best Sound at the 55th Academy Awards, uh, received the Academy Award for Technical Achievement 14 years later. So somebody realized that they did a lot of work on this, but it took them 14 years after the fact to get it to them. Uh, over time, Tron did develop a cult film, uh, did develop into a cult film, I should say, and eventually it spawned a franchise which consists of multiple video games, comic books, and even an animated television series. Uh, a sequel titled Tron Legacy was directed by Joseph Kaczynski and was released on December 17, 2010. It saw the return of Lisberger, Bridges, and Boxleitner to the franchise. So they did get a chance to come back. Uh, so to kind of give you an idea, I mean, the film really was, it was a great, great film. I loved this film. Uh, I remember seeing it multiple times when I was a kid. And we had stuff where we had videos and stuff where you could go and rent it. Blockbuster being what we had at the time. And actually, really, when I was growing up, Blockbuster really didn't show up until mm, late 80s, early 90s. So we actually had something that was the predecessor to Blockbuster called Video Library. And it was basically the same concept. You could go in and rent videos. They had Beta, for those of you who might actually remember what Betamax was. Uh, and then they had the VHS tapes. And I remember going in, we'd go in once a week. I would go in on Saturday, and I remember renting Tron like three or four times because my parents would say, those are the movies that you can rent, pick something out. And my parents my parents would uh, let me go in and pick it. And I always saw Tron, and I always thought it was kind of cool because it was video games and it had that flashy type ambiance. And I saw it, and I thought it was pretty good. Uh, I remember seeing it with my cousin at his birthday party. And, you know, unfortunately, I was the youngest kid there, and they all thought I was kind of a dweeb for sitting there and watching it and really enjoying the movie. But, you know, sucks to be them. Uh, but, yeah, it was it was a great film for those of you who haven't seen it. Uh, when you compare it to the sequel that came out here a few years ago, the Tron Legacy, uh, they tried to capture it. And, unfortunately, I, I think Disney fell flat on that. Tron Legacy really just didn't seem to pull it off. But we'll get to that later because that will be something we'll cover here in a little bit. Uh, so kind of to get into the plot of the movie here. Uh, what we had here, the plot is basically this, is that Kevin's, Kevin Flynn, who's played by Jeff Bridges, uh, he's a software developer, software engineer who was formerly employed by NCOM. And if you don't know what NCOM is, NCOM, think of it being like, well, the equivalent for today would be something like Microsoft. Uh, it's a very large software company. It's a fictional software company. doesn't really exist, but they were used to kind of put forth the video games and put forth software programs. Uh, so Kevin Flynn, basically, he designed several video games only to have another engineer, a guy by the name of Ed Dillinger, who was played by David Warner. Uh, David Warner stole them, passed off the games as his own. Basically, you know, pirated, stabbed Jeff Bridges in the back, Jeff Bridges' character in the back says, I'm going to screw you. He takes it over. Uh, Dillinger gets promoted to chief executive. 
soon as that happens, he goes, Jeff, he goes, uh, hey, Kevin Flynn, you're fired. Kicks Kevin Flynn out. So Flynn attempts to obtain evidence of Dillinger's action by sending in programs into ENCOM. But every time he tries it, he's prevented by this master control program, uh, which is basically an art- artificial intelligence that's written by Dillinger uh, that controls the ENCOM mainframe and seeks control over other mainframes as well. Now, this artificial intelligence that Dillinger invented, that basically Dillinger came up with, which was the MCP, uh, the MCP was really starting to get smart. And it was actually kind of kind of that whole scary thing of what would happen if machines kind of took over. Because uh, what happens is that Dillinger discovers when he's starting to go through with the MCP that the MCP is actually trying to, uh, basically trying to hack into and gain control of the Pentagon and the Kremlin, which you have to remember at this time, 1982, the Cold War was still going on. So there was a lot of, the, you know, the Russians are commies and we're afraid of the Russians. There was still a lot of that hype going on. Uh, so for anything to try and hack into the Kremlin, that was a big thing at the time. Uh, once Dillinger found out that, that they were trying to do this, that the MCP was trying to take over and do this hacking, he kind of said, you know what, I'm going to put a stop to this. And he starts trying to shut down the MCP. Well, the MCP comes up and says, you know, and it, it starts getting smart and it kind of says, I'm going to blackmail you. And it starts to say that it's going to expose the fact that Dillinger uh, had plagiarized Flynn's games. And, you know, Flynn's games are hugely successful. There's actually a scene at the very beginning of Tron where Jeff Bridges' character, Kevin Flynn, he owns an arcade called Flynn's Arcade. And he's actually playing the game Space Paranoids, sets the highest record on the game there. And people are just floored by the fact they're watching him go through and beat the game basically, and set this super high record, which was just unheard of. Uh, so I mean, it's really kind of neat, but I mean, you see this here and MCP is saying, well, you know what, if you don't want to let me, if you don't want to let me try to make my attacks on the Pentagon and on the Kremlin, try and take over, you know, I'm just going to reveal all this. And so it's kind of like, okay, uh, Dillinger kind of says, well, I'm going to sit tight and see what happens. You know, I'm just going to kind of shut my mouth. Well, uh, Flynn's ex-girlfriend, Laura Baines, who's played by Cindy Morgan, and her current boyfriend, Alan Bradley, who's played by Bruce Boxleitner, uh, they're both NCOM engineers. They warned Flynn that Dillinger knows about his hacking attempts, that that uh, Kevin Flynn keeps trying to hack into NCOM to try and find records of the fact that he did these, he wrote these games. Well, they warn him. They tell him they tighten security. Uh, Flynn says, hey, you know, tell you what, why don't you guys just try and sneak me into NCOM? You know, I'll be able to get in and find it out on my own. So it's like, okay, um, you know, they, they, they know what's going on. They're like, you know, they know that Flynn's getting screwed over because he's barely scraping by with his arcade. Uh, so they basically say, okay, we're going to sneak you in. Well, they sneak him in. Jeff Bridges gets into one of the master user computers and he forges a higher security clearance for Alan Bradley's program, which is named Tron. Uh, which would monitor communications between the MCP and the outside world. Uh, once he's sitting there, Jeff Bridges is sitting there on the machine trying to hack this in and uh, authorize the security clearance. Uh, MCP takes note of it and says, I have to protect myself. He takes an experimental, the MCP takes an experimental laser, shoots Jeff Bridges in the back with it, totally digitizes his body, uploads it into the NCOM mainframe. Now, this is where it gets really kind of sci-fi because you actually see him he's paused he's got his arms thrown back this laser shoots him hits him in the back and you see it erasing his fingertips and going all the way down through his body to shoot him into the mainframe basically the digital world 
So once we're in there, once we get into the digital world, uh, Kevin Flynn, he pops up. He doesn't remember anything about himself, really. I mean, he, he kind of thinks that he's a program or something to that effect, but he's not sure how he got there. All he knows is that he's shown up and he kind of appears in the mainframe. And basically, for the computer programs that are in the mainframe, they take on uh, likenesses of their human users who created them. So when you see Tron, Tron basically is Bruce Boxleitner. Uh, when you see Kevin Flynn, yeah, Kevin Flynn actually is a user, but he's put in there and he looks just like himself. When you see uh, Laura's character, uh, Laura, Laura's character in the in the digital world in the mainframe looks just like you know Laura's program looks just like Laura. Uh, and of course, when you start seeing uh, Sark, Sark is the program that's done, uh, which speaks with. Uh, Dillinger's character, you start seeing him and he's wandering around. He looks just like him. It's obviously the same characters, the same people playing them. Uh, you know, each one of these users, basically, or each one of these programs, they all have an identity disc, which they have strapped to their bas- backs. And it's kind of a throwback back to the old disc drives. Uh, many of you probably, you know, a lot of kids may not know what the disc drives look like, but basically it was supposed to be kind of a cross between a tape drive here where it looked like a big old reel, reel-to-reel piece of tape. And it was about the size of a Frisbee. And there's actually really kind of some interesting stuff that they use this for. They basically have uh, Frisbee battles, disc battles, back and forth within uh, within the game grids and within the mainframe uh, with their identity desks where they save each other and they basically battle back and forth to wipe out programs. Uh, now, the MCP and its second-in-command, the MCP is still here. It's the main thing you start seeing it. Uh, the, it has a second-in-command who's Sark, uh, which is played by David Warner here. Uh, they seek to control over input-output in the system. Basically, they're monitoring everything. They're kind of like an early, uh, an early firewall, in a sense, is really what they are. Uh, programs resistant to the MCP and Sark's rule, they're forced to play in martial games in which the losers are destroyed. So again, getting back to, hey, I'm better than you, I'm going to kill you off and wipe you out because I don't really feel that you're worth it. So the MCP itself, which is that artificial intelligence, is really kind of stopping this from happening. Uh, Now imprisoned by Sark, Flynn does meet Tron and another program named Ram. And together they escape their prison during a light cycle match, which light cycle match was really pretty cool. I love this scene. You start seeing these all these bikes basically racing back and forth together on a maze. And it's, I, I really shouldn't say it's a maze. Uh, basically, it's, it's laid out by like a – it looks like a, you know, like a 64 by 64 grid. And you see these bikes and they're kind of racing around. They're drawing as they go through. Uh, they're leaving these lines that stick up behind them, these walls basically. And it's kind of like the old arcade game Kick that was put out by, our, uh, by Atari where you basically have to box in something, and they you see them and they're trying to box them in. The object is to make sure that your light cycle doesn't hit the wall, doesn't crash, and doesn't blow up. And you have to trap the other guy who you're battling against so that they're stuck in the light cycle game, You know, so that they're stuck in there and they, get, they crash the wall and, and you move on. Well, that's kind of what happens here within this, uh, within this light cycle match. So what happens is after the match, they... they blow up the wall. They they actually have one of the bad guys crash into the wall. It pops open an empty spot in the wall. They escape with their three light cycles. So you have Ram, Flynn, and Tron. They take off. They start hauling ass. They finally stop. They take a look around. They, they're trying to find out where the input-output station is so 
Tron can communicate with Alan, so that they his user basically, so he can find out what's going on with Alan, how to go through and destroy the MCP. Well, in the process of leaving, uh, they they go to take off on their bikes to the light cycles to go head towards the input output station. A couple of tanks show up, they shoot at the three light cycles, pop open Tron or not Tron, they pop open Rams and Flynn's light cycles. They crash. They have this horrible crash here. They end up going to leave, and, and you know Ram is injured. He starts getting pulled off. Uh, Jeff Bridges' character, uh, Kevin Flynn, you know Flynn starts saving him, and he starts walking away. He carries him off here, finds this old like junkyard basically while they're trying to hide from these tanks who are trying to hunt them down. Well, they go into the, they go into this junkyard. They stop in this area, and while they're in this area, they they take a rest. Well. Flynn starts touching stuff in there as he's resting. You know, he kind of wakes up. And all of a sudden, they start hearing this beeping noise. And he starts looking around. He's like, what the hell's going on? So he turns to Ram. Ram looks at him and goes, this shouldn't be happening. You shouldn't be able to do that. Turns out that this is where Flynn really discovers that he has uh, the power to affect the virtual world, the digital world. And he starts realizing, he starts really kind of coming in and remembering the fact that he is a user. And not that he is a program set up by a user, but rather that he is a user himself. And he kind of pulls together one of the one of the uh, ships from Space Paranoids, and he's actually uh, he actually creates this thing, and it's basically a junker, and he's flying around trying to keep everything together. And we first start seeing this little character that shows up called the Bit, and the Bit basically just says yes and no, and it's yes, 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 no, 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 in a very mechanical type of tone. And so they start flying around, and he's basically, while Flynn is trying to fly this thing around, he sees Ram starting to die, and basically Ram's power fades. He fades out of existence. He's done for. He dies. Not really surprised to me, but that's what happens. So while he's while he's gone off, he tries to find out what's going on. He finally sees Tron and, and uh, a program named Yori, who's created by Laura, uh, and he sees them. They he sees them. He meets up back up with them. Rendezvous back up with them. They board a solar sailor simulation to reach the MCP's core. Uh, they basically fly through this. While they're doing this, though, Sark finds out. He takes his command ship and he tries to destroy the sailor. And this is where Tron and Yori discover while they're on the solar sailor that that uh, Flynn really is a user. He actually reaches into the energy stream that they're that they're on. And he redirects it to get around this path so that they can continue on another path that's going to, you know, that basically is going to destroy them. And so they, you know, they end up escaping a little bit. But Sark still decides that he's going to try and derez their solar sh- sailor ship. And they crash into his ship and everything. Uh, he captures Flynn and Yori. Tron falls and, and ends up, keeps going on to try and get to the input output tower. Uh, so while he's there. Uh, they end up going to the MCP's core on a shuttle, uh, and Tron confronts Sark outside the core while the MCP is attempting to consume the captives. So it's basically eating everybody who's on the shuttle that Sark has taken them on. Now Tron critically damages Sark, he attacks the MCP, and the MCP basically raises a shield. So you kind of see it, it's really kind of weird, like you see the MCP and the shield keeps flipping around in front of him, and it's basically like a, got like a conical point down at the bottom, where Tron keeps trying to throw his light disc. He try, keeps trying to throw his information disc to damage the MCP's core, and that's really what Alan had been telling him to do. Uh, 
Uh, so what happens is that the MCP raises the shield around the core and kind of brings Sark back to life to fight against Tron. And when he does this, Sark grows to this gigantic size and he's got damage to him and basically Tron is, is trying to fight him. And Flynn basically says, okay, he kisses Yori and he says, you know what, I got to stop this. I know how I can stop this, prevent the MCP uh, from keep going on. And what he does is, is Flynn jumps back into the MCP. He leaps in, transfers all of his energy. He takes over with his power that he has to manipulate the digital world. Um, he he kind of controls the MCP long enough to reveal a gap in its shield. So the shield flips around and Tron's able to throw his disc in, uh, kind of just destroys the MCP. Uh, it also, while doing this, kills off Sark. So Sark falls and dies and that's it. Uh, the input-output junctions are illuminated all around as programs begin to communicate with their users. Flynn's reconstructed back in the real world, uh, and a nearby printer produces the evidence that Dillinger had plagiarized uh, Flynn's creations. So you do see it pop up. It actually says who created it, and, he, and you know Flynn walks off with this. Uh, Dillinger enters his office, uh, finds MCP deactivated, the proof of his theft broadcast throughout the NCOM network. Uh, kind of just telling everybody, hey, I know what's up, you know, that, that this is what's going on. And Dillinger's kind of like, crap, my career's over. But at the same time, he's kind of like, he's glad that the threat of the MCP trying to hack everything, is it's over, it's done with. Flynn basically steps up, takes his rightful place as NCOM CEO, and Alan and Lord remain his friends. So it's kind of this... It's kind of this thing where, hey, he had an ex-girlfriend, but they are still on friendly terms, which I'm kind of glad of. Uh, now, for those of you who don't know what's going on with it here, basically, we have Jeff Bridges, who's Kevin Flynn. Uh, he is the former NCOM employee. Uh, he's beamed into the NCOM mainframe, as we stated in the plot. Uh, he also portrays CLUE, which stands for Codified Likeness Utility. Uh, it's a hacking program intended to find evidence of Dillinger's theft in the mainframe. And so really this is where Jeff Bridges first starts showing up, where uh, Kevin Flynn's character starts showing up. And Flynn really realizes that he's actually not – he thinks that when he first shows up that he is a program and that his name is Clue. And it really kind of – you know, it's kind of funny because it's like the inside joke with some of this is that he doesn't have a clue as to what the hell he's going on until he kind of discovers that he has this power and that he is a user. So it's kind of neat. Uh Bruce Boxleitner, he plays as Alan Bradley in the real world. He's the friend of Kevin Flynn, employee of NCOM. Uh, Boxleitner, for those of you who don't know, he did he has done quite a bit of other work. Uh, he was in he was in the uh, the movie The Babe with John Goodman, where John Goodman played Babe Ruth. Uh, he was one of he was supposed to be one of uh, Babe Ruth's friends in that movie. He also did a TV show back in the eighties, shortly after Tron came out, called Scarecrow and Mrs. King, and I vaguely remember that show. I remember it ran on CBS for a couple of seasons. My mom was a huge fan of it. She loved Bruce Boxleitner. It was kind of like, okay, I'm done with it. Uh, Bruce Boxleitner also played Tron in the movie, which was a security program that was developed by Bradley and that was trying to go through and, and defeat everything. Uh, it was trying to help defeat the MCP. Uh, David Warner, uh, I unfortunately, I don't know a whole lot about David Warner. I I, I know I've seen him in various things, but for life of me, unfortunately, with my IMDb adult brain, it's not coming to me as to what else he's done. But he played as Ed Dillinger, uh, who was a co-worker of Flynn, plagiarized Flynn's work, passed it off as his own, 
got the promotion of senior executive and finally taking over as CEO of the company. Uh, he also plays Sark the Command Program, and he plays the uh, uncredited voice of the Master Control Program of the MCP, which was the artificial intelligence created by Dr. Walter Gibbs and then expanded upon by Dillinger to go off and, and really control it and calm. Uh, we also have Cindy Morgan, who's Dr. Laura Baines. Uh, she's Alan's co-worker, girlfriend of Alan, and assistant to Dr. Walter Gibbs, who created all the stuff, who created the MCP. Uh, she also plays Yori, which is the program that's created by Baines and a confidant of Tron. So she basically hangs around, she tags along with Tron. Uh, it, it's really kind of weird because you never really find out whether they're like girlfriend, boyfriend in the digital world. Uh, the programs, you never really find that out whether they interact in that manner. It's, it's one of those weird questions which, as a kid, I always kind of wondered how they were related to, but it never really bothered me, and I really didn't want to ask because that was all beyond me and part of the birds and the bees that I didn't want to figure out. Hey, you know, maybe Tron's got a hard disk instead of a floppy. There's a bad joke for you. <laughs> uh, now, we did have Bernard Hughes, who played as Dr. Walter Gibbs, who was a founder and employee of NCOM. Uh, Bernard Hughes also plays Dumont, which is a guardian program that protects input and output junctions. And when they first go, when Tron goes and he wants to communicate with Alan Bradley, we see Dumont in this tower. And and it's really kind of weird because like when I see him, he's kind of stationed off in this uh, in like this huge tank looking thing where you just see his head and his body and it kind of moves around and spins around to show them. Well, later on in the movie, you see uh, Sark start torturing him, and he's put up on this wall, and you see him. And they did some really cool effects where they start shocking. They start shocking Dumont to try and get him to reveal what he did, and that the fact that he allowed uh, the fact that he bypassed the firewall, he allowed Tron to communicate with Alan uh, to find out how to defeat the MCP. Well, Dumont gets tortured and basically derezzed, or. Uh, I forget what derezzing stands for here in this. Please, if you know, if you know, please feel free to comment and let us know about this later on. But he helps to basically reveal that uh, he helps to reveal helps Tron to get access, and he ends up revealing at the end that he he did open up the input output tower for Tron to pass along and send information back and forth. All right, so now I do want to kind of delve in a little bit into the history of of the movie. Um, I did talk a little bit at the beginning about how Tron kind of really came about in 76 when Lisberger, uh, who was an animator of drawings with his own studio at the time, uh, he basically looked at a sample reel from a computer firm called Magi and saw Pong for the first time, saw what it was moving around, uh, really was kind of fascinated by video games. He saw what was coming in a sense. Uh, he saw that video games were going to be popular, and they really were. Uh, he wanted to do a film incorporating them, which was kind of big, and, and Lisberger basically said he realized that there were these techniques that would be very suitable for bringing video games and computer visuals to the screen. Uh, at the moment, that was the whole concept that flashed across his mind. Uh, he basically created an early version of the character Tron for a 30-second long animation, uh, which was used both to promote uh, Lisberger Studios and a series of various rock radio stations at the time. Uh, backlit cell animation depicted Tron as a character who glowed yellow rather than blue as he showed up in the movie. Uh, but it was the same shade that Lisberger had originally intended for all the heroic characters developed for the feature-length movie. Uh, this was later changed to blue for the finished film. 
Uh, Prototype Tron was bearded, kind of like how Dumont was. Uh, and he actually resembled more of like the Cylon Centurions from the original Battlestar Galactica show from the uh, 78 series. Uh, Tron was also armed with two exploding discs, as Lisberger described them on the two-disc DVD edition of Tron. And although it's possible that they may have represented vinyl records, it's interesting to note that in the 2011 film Tron Legacy, Tron once again appeared using two discs. And this is basically when he turned into Rinsler. So you do actually kind of get that. There's a little bit of throwback for those people who do have a little bit of history on Tron. Uh, now, Lisberger did say that everybody was doing backlit animation in the 70s. You know, it was that kind of disco look. And they thought, what if we had this character that was a neon line, and that was our Tron warrior, Tron basically being for electronic. Uh, what happened was, he said, he goes, I saw Pong. I said, well, that's the arena for him. Uh, at the same time, I was interested in the early phases of computer-generated animation, which I got into at MIT at Boston. And when I got into that, I met a bunch of programmers who were really all into that. Uh, they really inspired me by how much they believed in this new realm. So here back in 78, you know, back in the 70s, they knew that this was going to be a big thing. You know, he saw this and he kind of saw that it was going to take off. Nobody really knew that it was going to be as big as it has been. Uh, he was kind of frustrated by the click-like nature of computers and video games, uh, really because it was like, you know, you had these people who were just complete nerds who were building these games and, and they were for just the computer nerds and the general public really kind of didn't fit into it too well. Uh, he wanted to create a film that would really open up the world to everyone. You know, let everybody know, hey, there's games out there. Go play them. Check them out. Uh, so Lisberger and his business partner, Donald Kushner, they moved to the West Coast in 1977. They set up an animation studio to develop Tron. They borrowed against the anticipated profits of their 90-minute animated television special, Animal Olympics, to develop storyboards for Tron with the notion of making an animated film. Now, this film was conceived as an animated film. It was bracketed with live-action sequences. So we do see this here, that originally it was supposed to be all animated art. Uh, the rest would involve a combination of computer-generated visuals and backlit animation. So again, getting back to that 70s animation-style film. Uh, the computer-generated visuals were a new thing for it. Nobody had really thought about doing that at this time. Because computers were still in their infancy stages. You have to remember that with computers then, they were still being housed in stuff that was a warehouse. They were still running on old magnetic tape drives. Kind of like, well, for those of you who know about our era, who are from this era, would know like a cassette tape. These things were like a cassette tape, only they were running on these giant reel-to-reel -reel cassettes. Uh you know, it, it was really expensive for those things, really expensive to run, you know, and when floppy disks started showing up, and we started seeing more and more and more of that, uh, going to the five and a quarter, and then eventually to the three and a half, and then on to actual hard drives, uh, a lot of that kind of changed. So, basically getting back to the film, uh, Lisberger planned to find, finance the movie independently, uh, he wanted to basically finance it out of his own pocket and, and out of other people's, you know, get money from outside of studios. And he started approaching several computer companies, but basically they said, eh, pound sand. Uh, he met with one company, Information International Incorporated, who was receptive. And he met with Richard Taylor, who was representative of the company, and they began talking about using live-action photography with backlit animation in such a way that it could be integrated with computer graphics. 
And at this point, Lisberger had already had a script written, and the film entirely storyboarded with some computer animation tests completed. So he basically spent approximately $300,000 developing Tron, and it also secured 4 to $5 million in private funds, private backing, before reaching the standstill of where to go. Uh, so Lisberger and Kushner took their storyboards, samples of computer-generated films to Warner Brothers, MGM, Columbia Pictures, all of them which basically said, this isn't going to fly, it's not going to be popular, we're not going to go with it. So in 1980, they decided to take the idea to Disney, who was interested in producing more daring productions at the time. And, and this was really kind of when you were starting to see Tron. They had started to go into live-action films. Uh, they had the black hole that, was, that had come out here. They had, uh, they had Tron. They were really starting to move out of being just known for animation. Uh, Disney executives were uncertain about giving 10 to $12 million, though, to a first-time producer and director using techniques using techniques which in most cases had never been attempted. I mean, this is the first time that you've ever seen computer generation really starting to be taken off in a large-scale format. Uh, so it was really kind of something. The studio agreed to finance a test reel which involved a flying disc champion throwing a rough prototype of the discs used in the film. It was a chance to really mix that live-action footage with backlit animation and computer-generated visuals, so kind of bringing it all together into one. Now, that, that uh, footage really did impress the executives at Disney. They agreed to back the film, and the script was subsequently rewritten and re-storyboarded with the studio's input. Uh, now, at this time, Disney had rarely hired outsiders to make films for them, and Kushner found that he and his group were given a less-than-warm welcome, uh, mainly because when they came in, he said, we tackled the nerve center, the animation department. Uh, they saw us as a germ from outside. We tried to enlist several Disney animators, but none came. They, he said Disney really is a closed group. Well, the reason for it is that these animators, they were afraid that computer generation, really looking back on this, it's really kind of funny, they were afraid that computer generation, computer generated animation was going to take over, which sadly it really has. That has been what has happened here with Disney animation. And when Pixar first showed up, everybody was like, oh my God, this is incredible. And it was cheaper actually to produce an animated film using computers than it was to go and do the old line art style animation. And so John, uh, John Laster, he went through and they went through and they started going through and doing all these films. Disney, you know, Pixar had all these films here. They finally bought the rights to Pixar. Disney owns Pixar now. Uh, once that happened, Lasseter basically said, fine, if I'm going to be part of this company, if I'm going to be part of Disney, because he had actually split off from Disney. He started as an animator at Disney and left to go out and do his own thing, to create these computers that he was working with uh, that were really supposed to be selling his software, the RenderMan software, which is absolutely incredible software. Well, when he left Disney, he took off. He, he got a bunch of money from Steve Jobs, and they were really working with Next Computers. They took off. They did their own thing. And in the process, you know, he said that he saw this, Lasseter said that he saw Tron, and that, that was what really inspired him to start working with computers to do computer animation. So here Tron's kind of coming back in this whole circle. Uh, but the reason for it is that these guys were afraid that computers were going to take over. And, you know, now you look at what Disney has done. All of their films in the last five years, well, I would say almost all of them because they have they have had a couple of films that have not been computer generated. The big one being Princess and the Frog that 
that was that was the first line art that they had done in like I want to say twenty years or fifteen years or something like that, ten or fifteen years. And the whole reason that that came back into line art animation was that uh, was that Lasseter had stepped in and said, you know, look, we want to open this back up. We need to have line art animation again. It needs to come back. Yes, there's a lot of people that are into the computer animation stuff. Yes, that is a way to go, but we need to have a return to it. And when Pixar and Disney merged, he fought to get that back. And so he said, he goes, I'm going to be like a creative executive officer. He said, I'm going to step in and we're going to put this back in. So that whole thought of being, you know, with Lisberger saying that he was really kind of an outsider because he was trying to use computer animation and the guys thought they were going to kill it off. It actually was, you know, I mean, he thought, oh, it's an unfounded fear. Well, lo and behold, you know, several years later, this is what happened. So... It was kind of interesting with what happened there with that. Uh, now, because of the many special effects within the film, Disney did decide in 1981 to film Tron completely in 65mm Super Panavision, except for the computer-generated layers, which were later shot in VistaVision, blown up to anamorphic 35mm, and Super 35, which were used for some scenes in the real world, and subsequently blown up even, for, even further uh, to 65mm. Now, three designers were brought in to create the look of the computer world. We had renowned French comic book artist Jean Murad, a.k.a. Mobius, who was the main set and costume designer for the movie. Uh, and most of the vehicle designs, including Sark's aircraft carrier, light cycles, the tank, the solar sailor, and such, were created by industrial designer Sid Mead of Blade Runner fame. So here comes somebody who's gone off and done other things in the 1980s for special effects that really has been had a lot of name behind him. Um, and he started in with Tron on this. So uh, Peter Lloyd, he was also the third one who was a high-tech commercial artist designing the environments for the, for what happened in the digital world. Uh, now, a lot of these jobs did often, often overlap. Uh, Gerard, Gerard did work on the Solar Sailor and Mead design terrain, sets, and films logo. Uh, the original program director design was inspired by Lisberger Studios' logo of a glowing bodybuilder hurling two discs. So that logo that you do see with Tron, it actually kind of was inspired by that. Uh, now, to create the computer animation sequences of Tron, Disney did turn to the four leading computer graphics firms of the day. Uh, at that time, you had Information International Incorporated of Culver City, uh, who owned the Super Foonly F1, which was the fastest PDP-10 ever made and the only one of its kind. So basically, this big-ass supercomputer. Uh, you also had Magi of Elmsford, New York, um, and I have to bring this up here. This guy's name is Robert Abel and Associates. He is of no relation to me, but God, I wish he was because I would love to be in this industry. Uh, he is of California. And then, of course, Digital Effects of New York City. Uh, now, Bill Kovacs did work on this movie while working for Robert Abel before going on to found Wavefront Technologies. Uh, the work was not a collaboration, resulting in very different styles used by the firms. So you had kind of a lot of things going on with it. Uh, Tron was one of the first movies to make extensive use of any form of computer animation. Uh, it's celebrated as a milestone in the industry, as I've mentioned many times throughout this podcast so far. Uh, and really only 15 to 20 minutes of computer animation were actually used. Uh, mostly scenes that show digital terrain or patterns or include vehicles such as light cycles, tanks, and ships. Now, with this here, with this technology at the time, because going again, going back to the 1980s, the end of the 70s, early 80s, uh, 
Technology to combine computer animation and live action did not really exist at the time. Uh, these sequences were basically interspersed with the film characters. So the computer used had, and, and this is something that blows my mind here, the computer that they used to do all the rendering. Now, again, look at the film, look at what it had, look at the techniques that it had. It was incredibly, incredibly complicated from what I, from what I can see. I mean, I look at it and I still think to this day, of what Tron did. That computer that they used had two megabytes, not gigabytes, not what like you'd find in your normal laptops nowadays, not even like what you'd find in an iPad or an iPhone, okay? Keeping this in mind, it had two megabytes of memory, and the hard drive disk that was in the sucker had no more than 330 megabytes of storage, okay? So you know those little thumb drives that you can go and pick up? that have five and six gigabytes. This thing, this computer that they rendered Tron with had so much less horsepower than that. I mean, it was, you know, and again, these computers were supercomputers for the time, which was really pretty impressive. Uh, especially when you think about this, this movie was, this movie's over 30 years old. And when you look at it, to see it today, it still fascinates me. It still fascinates people. Okay, but it was done with a very compared to tech, uh, today's technology, very low-tech computer. Uh, now, this put this because of this horsepower that it had, it did put a limit of detail on the background, and at a certain distance, they had a procedure of mixing in black to fade things out, basically a process called depth cueing. And the movie's, the movie's computer effects supervisor, Richard Taylor, told them, when in doubt, black it out, which became their motto for fixing a lot of the backgrounds. Uh, now, most of the scenes, backgrounds, and visual effects in the film were created using more traditional techniques and a unique process known as backlit animation. Uh, basically, in this process, live-action scenes inside the computer world were filmed in black and white on an entirely black set, printed on large-format, codolith, high-contrast film, and then colored with photographic and rotoscopic techniques to give them a technological appearance. So basically, they overlaid a lot of stuff to get this look, uh, to get that blue and... and uh, that blue tone, that blue hue, and you do see that a lot. Uh, now, with the multiple layers of high contrast, large format positives and negatives, this process required truckloads. And we're talking like, you know, we're not talking like little, oh, pickup trucks. We're talking like a semi-truck, okay? Uh, it required truckloads of this sheet film, and the workload was even greater than that of a conventional cell animated feature. So there's a lot of work going into this. Uh, now, the Codalith was specially produced as large sheets by Kodak for the film, and it came in numbered boxes so that each batch of the film could be used in order of manufacture for a consistent image. Now, this was not understood by the filmmakers, and so as a result, glowing lines and circuit traces occasionally flicker the, as the film speed varied between batches. So you start seeing, you'll start seeing a little bit of flickering going on. Well, once they discovered what was causing the reason... Uh, it was no longer a pro problem as the batches were used in order. And then what they did was they used zinger sounds to dis to, during the flicker parts to represent the computer world mal malfunctioning, as Lisberger described it. So basically, they found a way to cover it up. Now, in 2011, uh, when they did a full, restore full restoration of the film, uh, Lisberger later had these flickers and sounds digitally corrected for the 2011 release. Uh, so they weren't originally included in his original vision of the film. Now, due to its difficulty and cost, 
this process of doing the whole uh, Codalith high contrast film format uh, was not repeated for another feature film. Uh, now, sound design and creation for this film was first assigned to Frank Serafine, who was responsible for the sound design of the Star Trek The Motion Picture in 1979. Uh, Tron did get some awards. It, it did get a 1983 Academy Award nominee for Best Sound. Now, this is kind of funny because it was actually up for, you know, they wanted to put it in. Uh, the Academy actually disqualified it for special effects due to the fact that it used computer animation and the industry, the Academy basically said, well, we feel it's cheating for using computers. Let me stop for that. Let me stop for a second. We consider special effects using computers for special effects to be cheating. How many special effects movies do you see nowadays that aren't used with computers? I can tell you none of them. Absolutely none. So they've kind of reversed that whole option. And that was one of the reasons why Tron did get, like 15 years later, they did get an Academy Award later for technical achievement, which I'm glad for. They really did deserve it, being the fact that they went out on a limb for a lot of this. And it really has opened up everybody's eyes for what computers can do for the entertainment industry. Now, a couple of bits of trivia about this film here. Uh, at one point, we do have a small entity called Bit that advises Flynn with only the words yes or no. Uh, he was His voice was actually created by a Votrax speech synthesizer. So it really was – it was actually something that was being done and fed through the synthesizer. It wasn't actually a real person, which I thought was kind of neat. Uh, also here, with the post-production work, uh, there were over 550 people. Actually, 569 people were involved in the post-production work, which included 200 inkers and hand painters in Taiwan's Cuckoo's Nest studio. Now, with this, with them doing this, when it shows up in their names with the credits, uh, this was actually one of the few English-language films uh, where in the end credits, the personnel listed from Taiwan were listed with their frames written in in Chinese characters. Uh, so it's kind of neat to see that. Now, the film does feature parts of the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. Uh, this is the multi-story uh, multi Uncom laser bay was the target area for the Shiva solid-state multi-beam laser. Uh, also, the stairway that Alan, Laura, and Flynn used to reach Alan's office is the stairway in Building 451 near the entrance to the main machine room at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. Uh, the cubicle scenes were shot in another room of the lab. Now, Tron is the only movie to have scenes filmed inside this lab. Uh, now, with regards to that, um, when they were doing the exterior shooting where the giant door was at the very beginning, uh, there actually had been radioactive spillage near the shoot uh, for ENCOM. And Cindy Morgan even stepped in a contaminated area in there. Uh, she actually had to have her shoes decontaminated because of that radiation. So it's kind of interesting when, to see that, to hear that, learn that. Uh, now, the original script did call for good programs to be colored yellow, evil programs, and basically those loyal to Sark and the MCP to be colored blue. Partway into production, this coloring scheme was changed to blue for good and red for evil, but some scenes were produced using the original coloring scheme. Uh, Clue, who drives a tank, has a yellow circuit lines, and all of the Sark's tank commanders are blue, but appear green in some presentations. Uh, also, the light cycle sequence shows the heroes driving yellow with Flynn, orange for Tron, and red for Ram uh, light cycles, 
while Sark's troops drive blue cycles. So similarly, Clue's tank is red while tanks being driven by crews loyal to Sark are blue. So you kind of do see that mix there. Kind of, It's kind of confusing, but at the same time, it doesn't really bother the story too much. Okay, so the producers also added Easter eggs into the movie. Uh, during the scene where Tron and Ram escape from the light cycle arena in the system, uh, Pac-Man can't actually be seen behind Sark, while a hidden Mickey outline can be seen below the solar sailor during the protagonist's journey. Uh, I have looked for these things. It's actually very quick, and it's gone. They did kind of add some of the stuff back in into the original, into the new Tron Legacy. Uh, in Tron Legacy, you will see stuff like there's a Mickey head that shows up uh, when there's fireworks going off over the digital world. Uh, you do see Mickey's head kind of show up in the little silhouette. Uh, now, with Flynn's program that was going out and uh, researching for Flynn, uh, his program was named Clue. And just a little throwback is that Clue is an old programming language, kind of like BASIC and Fortran. Uh, Tron is also uh, has a name within programming. Uh, it's a debugging command in the BASIC programming language, uh, which is short for Trace On. However, Steven Lisberger stated in interviews that he took the name from the word electronic, and he didn't really know what about the BASIC command until later when somebody told him. Uh, so... This is really fascinating here, I thought was really interesting. So at the time, back in 1981, 1982, when they were, or 1980, 1981, when they were going through the production of the film, uh, computers could only generate static images. They couldn't automatically put them into motion, so they couldn't tie them all together. Uh, thus, for the coordinates for each image, such as a light cycle, they had to be entered in for each individual frame, and it took 600 coordinates to get four seconds of film. Now, each of these coordinates was entered into the computer by hand by the filmmakers. So, basically, you have guys sitting there and typing out and saying, okay, we need to move this, we need to move the light cycle from this point to this point. So now for this next frame, we need to enter 600 coordinates. We need to enter here, this coordinate here, this coordinate here, this coordinate here, all so that they can get the shapes. Because what was happening was that these images, with, with the way the computer generation was being done at the time, they were being drawn out with a bunch of little lines, what they call a wireframe model. And they were overlaying sheets onto them and saying, these are the coordinates that we need to have for these wireframe models. And then they'd plaster over stuff later on. So they were what they called vector images. And you can start to see it. If you ever go and play the old Star Wars video game that came out back in the 80s, uh, that, is a, that is a perfect example of vector, uh, vector line images for video games. Uh, it actually really was a popular thing. Battle Zone, uh, which was another popular arcade game at this time, had a lot of vector line images. So you do see that, and that was kind of what was going on. But you have to keep in mind that this was not being done by anything really powerful. It was done image by image by image. And they basically take a snapshot, move on to the next frame, and redraw the next frame. Really, really, really intense with how they came out with it. And that's part of the reason why they had these truckloads of film. Uh, now, as I mentioned here, many Disney studios did refuse to work on the on the movie because they feared that computers would put them out of business. 22 years later, Disney closed its hand-drawn animation studio in favor of CGI animation. Uh, hand-drawn animation was ultimately resumed at Disney at the behest of the new creative director, John Laster, who was the head of Pixar, ironically, a computer animation company. Uh, oh, and this next bit, for those ladies who like a little bit of a bulge, well... Just so you know, Jeff Bridges apparently is very well endowed because 
when he was wearing his Flynn costume uh, to go into the Tron area, uh, basically they said, uh, yeah, you know what? You got too much of a bulge down there in the crotch area. Uh, we need to do something about that here. They have this thing called a dance belt, which kind of just tucks everything up and pulls it back and kind of pushes it into place. And Think of it being like a sports bra for girls. Okay? It's a sports bra for guys, only kind of just holding the junk in in the right place. Uh, so I thought that was kind of funny. And then as I mentioned before that the film was disqualified from the Academy Award uh, nomination for special effects because the Academy felt that at the time the computers was cheating. Uh, also, and this is something I have done, uh, Disneyland guests, they can play Space Paranoids in the Tomorrowland Souvenir Store in the back near the Space Mountain exit. Now, last time I was there... I didn't see this, and it's probably a good thing because my wife would have killed me if I'd stood there and played for half an hour on Space Paranoids because I love that game. Uh, it actually sat next to a Tron arcade game and near uh, several Fix-It Felix Jr. games from the movie Wreck-It Ralph. Uh, now, on the scores, on the high scores for the game, FLN, standing for Kevin Flynn, holds all the high scores. This game actually used to be, they did have at one time over at Disney California Adventure, they had a thing called Electronica, and it was basically put out to promote the movie Tron Legacy. And when they did it, they did something that was very near and dear to my heart. They created, they recreated Flynn's Arcade. They put it into the back there, and they basically had an arcade area of all these old retro games that you could go and play. Uh, things like Road Blaster, Space Invaders, uh, Tron. Uh, gosh, Paperboy, APB, all these things that you would find in your typical 1980s arcade. And I went there, I loved it. Everything was a quarter, you had to put in a token. They actually had special tokens that came out of there that were stamped. Uh, Disney's California Adventure Electronica, and it said, that's what it said on one side, and on the other side, it said Flynn's Arcade. I actually have a few of them. I'm glad I've kept them because you cannot find them anywhere anymore, period, since they've closed down. They've closed it down, and they went into this whole Mad Hatter's Tea Party bullshit, which I hate. Uh, so I mean, really, this was this was a great, great film. I loved it, as I stated. Uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, please go watch it. And if you're wanting to watch Tron Legacy, watch this first, please, because you're going to watch it. You're going to see Tron Legacy and you're going to go, this sucks. What the hell is I thinking? Uh, please don't let Tron Legacy reflect your images and your thoughts on Tron. I'll be honest, most sequels for most movies tend, excuse me, tend not to be as good as the originals. That's just likely. That's just life of them. Uh, you know, I mean, there are some exceptions when we look at Terminator 1 and Terminator 2. Personally, I think that Terminator 2 was as good as the first one, if not better, but that's another story for another day that we'll cover on the podcast later. But I did want to let everybody know, please go see this movie if you haven't. Yes, it is a throwback to the 1980s, but it's also a very important film in film and, film and animation because of the styles that they use. It's not something that you see nowadays. It's probably nothing that you will ever see again. They won't duplicate this. They've tried, obviously, with Tron Legacy, and it just didn't come off very well. Uh, now, I do want to also talk real quick, before I forget, uh, Tron did have several video games that have come out. Uh, they did have, for the Tron Legacy film, uh, they did come out with some Tron video games for the PlayStation, Xbox, 
uh, for uh, some of the handheld game systems. I want to say, please correct me if I'm wrong, folks, because I'd be more than happy to take the criticism on it. Um, I want to say they came out with something for the PlayStation Vita and for, uh, oh, I want to say the the Nintendo DSi. I'm not 100% certain on that. Uh, but they did have that. They also had arcade games, an actual Ar- Tron arcade game, which you can go and play. Uh, the Tron arcade game basically has the light cycles. You have a disc part where you have to throw it at the MCP and defeat the shield. Uh, they have a, a part where you can kind of play as a tank, driving it around. Very similar to combat from the Atari game system. Uh, and then there was something else they had. And I can't for the life of me remember what else was in this. Was else was in it. Um, Oh well, it'll come back to me, I'm sure. But it was it was actually a pretty good game. Um, the the original Tron game it did actually have on the corners of it. It actually said that it was made by Encom, although I believe it was made by Bally Midway. Uh, so they do put that little bit in there. And there's not it does not appear with Bally Midway on the game title itself. Uh, if you go out and you find it, yes, you can buy it. Uh, it will say that if you need repair manual, manuals or something like that, to please contact Bally Midway for it. But it was pretty interesting, and I liked that. Uh, also, there was the Space Paranoids game, uh, which actually is a direct port. It's basically what Kevin Flynn is playing in the movie uh, that he sets the high score on. It's the game that he supposedly creates, and it also has NCOM on the name of the game. Uh, great game. You basically drive around as a tank, and you're supposed to be shooting these giant things. Like in the Tron movie, there is a spot where uh, Flynn does get the power, and he kind of gets this power to create this uh oh gosh how do i look how do i describe it it's like it looks it reminds me of like a giant crab but with two legs that kind of come down and have hooks and they fly around the city and they capture people uh but you get you basically have to drive a tank around and, you, and you're doing a first person perspective and shooting at these uh giant flying things before they before they shoot you and before they destroy you and that's basically what space paranoids is all about uh, great game i loved it thought it was a lot of fun uh, they had that, you know, to me, if you go and you play these games in the arcade, that's really where you should play them. Now, pay the homage to the games, please. Just enjoy it for what it is. Uh, now, pretty much I'm done with this episode here. I do want to let people know that we are uh, going to be moving on. I do have some upcoming episodes that we will be doing. Uh, I am trying to get somebody together to do a Doctor Who episode with us. Uh, that will cover some of the classic Doctor Who all the way up until current. Um, I know that it is ongoing. The 50th anniversary has not happened yet, and I really, I've been trying to keep the podcast a little, uh, a little bit of a timeless feel for it. And I apologize for those of you who have, uh, who have gone off on that. We do have like with the Phineas and Ferb episode, I did kind of get away from that timeless episode feel, and I kind of set it more to where it's a capture of time, uh, you know, a moment in time. So, you know, the Phineas and Ferb, the problem with them, with these shows, Phineas and Ferb is still ongoing. So is Doctor Who. They're coming up with the 50th anniversary here at the end of the year. Uh, that will be something that we will cover eventually. Uh, we probably will come back to that 50th anniversary because of Doctor Who going on for as long as it has. Uh, but as I said, we do have Doctor Who coming uh, I will be doing Princess Bride. Uh, we will also be doing Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Uh, I am trying to get some more video game things in there. The problem with doing this is that I pretty much am the only person that I know 
who has a passion for video games as much as I do. So if you are somebody who has a passion for some of the older Nintendo games, uh, somebody who is interested in, in Bionic Commando or Legend of Zelda or Super Mario Brothers franchise, something like that. And, and I'm not talking about the new stuff that you can pick up on the Wii, no. I'm talking about the old retro stuff, the old 8-bit versions that were originally played on the NES and Super NES, you know, 16-bit versions on the NES. If, you, if that was your type of game, let me know. We'll get together. We'll talk about this stuff. Please, I'd love to have a co-host who can go head-to-head, toe-to-toe with me. Uh, you know, we'll definitely talk about that. So this pretty much wraps it up for this episode of Talking About My Generation. Uh, please feel free to leave us feedback on iTunes, uh, which reminds me that as of next week, I will be canceling the first uh, first feed that we have. I will be getting iTunes or getting Apple to cancel that. So if you have not switched over yet, please do so. Please use the new feed. Uh, if you don't know where the new feed is, you can pick that up at mygenerationpodcast.com. We do have a subscribe to iTunes button, and that will take you to the new feed. Uh, now, if you want to leave us a tweet, you want to send us something on Twitter, uh, you can reach me. I am at S-P-R-Z-O-U-T. Uh, you can also send us an email at mygenerationpodcast at gmail.com. You can leave us a comment on mygenerationpodcast.com on any one of the podcast episodes. Uh, there is a way to reply to them. You just have to click on the podcast name, and it will open up into a page that will allow you to leave comments. Please do this. Please let us know how we're doing. Uh, please leave us feedback on iTunes, as I mentioned, because that way we know what we're doing wrong. We'll be happy to try and fix it. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook at Talking About My Generation. Please just look for the logo that says Talking About My Generation and, and leave us feedback. Let us know how we're doing. Like us. Tell us what we're doing wrong. You know. Uh, so I will go ahead and I will sign off with this episode here with the Tron intro theme song. <laughs>